heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Ladies and gentlemen, I have an acronym I want to introduce you to today. Some of you may have heard it before. It's an acronym used uh, sometimes by investors, uh, particularly woke investors. Uh, But I want to introduce it to you today. It's going to be a big part of our conversation. You are, incidentally, on Voice of a Nation. I'm Wallace Garneau, guest hosting for Malcolm. So that acronym is ESG. What does ESG stand for? It stands for Environmental Social Governance, ESG. The environmental side of this is broken up into what they call three phases. Phase one are all of the emissions that a company produces. Phase two are all of the emissions that are produced on behalf of the company. So, for example, a company probably doesn't produce its own electricity, but it has to get the electricity from someone. So the electric company then would be a phase two part of a company's emissions. Phase three would be a company's entire supply line, so or entire supply chain, rather, and that's global. So if you are a publicly traded company and you are focusing on ESG, uh, the environmental part of it means you have to report on your environmental, everything that you produce, basically, that has any environmental impact. That's CO2, that could be soot, could be any kind of emissions. You have to report also on emissions that are created directly on your behalf by, for example, the electric company. You also have to report on all emissions created by your entire global supply chain. So everybody you do business with, that's all a part of your your environmental aspect of, of ESG. The second part of that, of course, is social. You get graded on what your social contribution is. Now, what somebody's social contribution should be, that's somewhat subjective, relates to how well they treat their employees, how well they pay their employees, how well they manage in with or blend in with the communities they are a part of, uh, and also how well they fit with the needs and desires of the nation that they are a part of, or nations, plural, that they are a part of. Now, ESG in the United States has historically been something that companies have played with in terms of trying to attract ESG investors, but it's not something that has been baked into American finance or American standards or anything like that. In the United States, we have the Financial Accounting Standards Board, and we use a group of accounting rules called the Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, or GAAP. The FASB is Financial Accounting Standards Board. And the SEC is very, very involved in looking at publicly traded companies' financial disclosures, which are publicly record, you know, you can, anybody can look at them, they're a part of the public record, and comparing them to the generally accepted accounting principles to make sure that companies are on the up and up, and their financial records are accurate. That if you look at their profit and loss statement, for example, they're not lying to you. That's a very, very important role of the SEC is in ensuring that those documents are accurate. So as an investor, when you are investing in a company, you need to know, is it really as profitable as they claim to be? Because the value of a company is, theoretically at least, not theoretically, this is the value of a company. This is the classic economist way of valuing any company. 
you are looking at the net present value of all future profit. Now, the hard part isn't defining what the value of a company is. It's There's no way of knowing what the net present value of all future profit is. But for people to try to guess what the proper value of a company is, it is important that they know that the financial records that they're looking at when trying to make investment decisions meet the generally accepted accounting principles. Now, they're doing things correctly in terms of, of, of profit and loss and, and all of those things. And I don't want to get into a big, you know, into a big business discussion about this. I just general overview. There's also an International Accounting Standards Board, or the IASB, and they use what they call the International Financial Reporting Standards, or the IFRS. I'm throwing these acronyms at you because you may start hearing about these in the news. And rather than using generally accepted accounting principles, the International Financial Reporting Standards, they're very different in a number of important ways. Uh, that aren't necessarily relevant to our discussion today, but I'll just, just touch on them a little bit. Uh, they're different in terms of how you devalue assets after you've purchased them. You know, you make a capital purchase and you are allowed to run the value of that thing from what you purchased it at down to zero over a period of time. Uh, there's a big tax implications in, in how you devalue those over time. And those rules are different in the generally accepted accounting principles than they are in the international financial reporting standards. So, you know, there are some legitimate differences there, and it is important when people are looking at the finances of a company, deciding what to invest in, that they know you, you have to have some way, if you're going to buy, for example, internationally, you have to have some way of, of trying to, to, put, to put together the, the differences between the IFRS and the GAAP standards so that you know, are they depreciating things correctly? You know, is it truly an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, really? Uh, and as an investor, it's, it's, it's important to know those kinds of things, but that's not really what I want to focus on today because that's not ESG. What I want to focus on today is on how the international financial reporting standards are not only financial. Those also involve ESG. So the international accounting standards are looking at environmental, social, and governance. So if you want to follow the international financial reporting standards, you have to tell the world not only your environmental impact, but how woke you are. And uh, I'm not saying that Disney is following the IFRS rather than the GAAP, but I am telling you that when you see companies that are going super woke, they're looking at the environmental social governance aspect of, of their company. And there are investors in the United States that rather than looking just at the financials of companies, they're very, very interested in the environmental social governance. And now, before I tell you why this is such a dangerous topic, I'm going to talk a little bit about something, history, really. I actually wrote something that, uh, in response to somebody calling a fellow conservative a Nazi. And so uh, I wrote this, I'm going to read it to you verbatim, not because I like to read rather than talk, but because it's a very, very, I think this is a very, very succinct. I've, I've written about this in the past far, with, with far more words. I, I think this is very succinct. So I'm just, just going to read something that I wrote as response in a Facebook post. I wrote, 
It always cracks me up when people call the Nazis right-wing. In Germany, they really were right-wing, but then the state of Germany did not exist until 1871 when Otto von Bismarck put 32 pieces of the Holy Roman Empire together into a unified German socialist state. So the German state in 1871, created by Otto von Bismarck, it was socialist. The right wing is, of course, a conservative wing, which means the wing trying to conserve or move more toward that which a nation is or recently has been. Note that the word liberal, which is generally applied to the American left, has the same root as liberty and libertarian, which are words associated with the American right. That's because the fledgling United States was founded on Enlightenment values that were in opposition to serfdom and nobility. And remember, in 1876, King George, England was very, very much a kingdom. So the Enlightenment was considered very liberal or left-wing in England. Now, by founding America on what the English considered extremely liberal ideas, our right-wing started out as a pretty extreme reflection of the British left-wing. And for a long time, if you looked at conservatives in between America and England and liberals between America and England, our conservatives were their liberals. And conversely, their liberals were our conservatives. That's just because we founded our country on what they considered very, very liberal ideals. So when we talk about conserving American values, we're talking about conserving the Enlightenment. We're talking about conserving liberty. We're talking about conserving all of those things that in England were considered very, very left-wing upon the founding of the United States. So the Nazis then were a reflection of Germany's right wing, which had two primary components. One, socialism. That's Otto von Bismarck now. We're talking about Otto von Bismarck. The right-wing Germany is, is as the German state was created in 1871 by Otto von Bismarck. So he was a socialist. It was created as a socialist country. And the Nazis, of course, Nazi is an acronym that in German translates to the National Socialist Workers' Party. And their platform, if you look at it, other than the racist parts, it very closely mirrors that of the modern American left, the original Nazi party platform and what they ran on the entire time they were in power. Other than the racist parts and other than war parts, it really very closely resembles the modern American left's platform. You know, socialized medicine, for example, all these kinds of things. Uh, the second thing that Germany's right wing is a reflection of, the second component, Germany having recently been created to be the homeland of, for the Germanic people and not consisting of all primarily Germanic areas, most notably Austria was not a part, the German sense of nationalism was ethnic more than geographic. So the Germans even had a word for the idea of fulfilling the dream of uniting all of the Germanic peoples together, primarily Austria. They called that the Anschluss, or the Anschluss. I mean, forgive my pronunciation, I read more than I hear about this stuff. The Anschluss. The Nazis, of course, they weren't socialist. They were fascist. But then that brings up the question, what is fascism? Well, it turns out that fascism is a political and economic philosophy created by primarily the Italian philosopher Giovanni Gentile, who saw it as an improved version of communism, communism being the economic engine of, oh, excuse me, the economic engine of communism being socialism, so fits very in well, very with, it fits in very well with, with Otto von Bismarck, at least the economic side of communism does. Communism also, there's obviously a political side. Communism is more than just 
socialism. It's a very specific form of socialism. So not comparing those two things. I'm just saying socialism is the economic engine of communism. Now let's be very, very clear on that. And by socialism, let's define our terms. I am talking about state ownership of the means of production. I'm talking about the traditional dictionary definition of, of that word. There are people who use it today for all kinds of crazy things. And I, 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 want to, I want to be clear in how I'm defining the word. And I'm defining the word correctly. Socialism is government ownership over the means of production. So be clear on that. So the Nazis weren't socialists, they were fascists. But fascism is a political and economic philosophy created by primarily the Italian philosopher Giovanni Gentile, who saw it as an improved version of communism. The difference between fascism and communism is that fascism was kind of communism running with the profit incentive maintained. So you take the profit incentive of free markets, you keep that. State control over it, you can't, you know, the state could tell you how much profit you're allowed to make, they can tell you how much you have to pay your employees. They can they can have as much control over that as, as the state wants to take, but you still have pay for employees. That's how they buy things. You know, like that's how they buy their house or pay rent. That's how they buy whatever they want. So you have aspects then of, of of a free market, but it's all tightly controlled. It's not free. It's all tightly controlled by the government. That was Giovanni Gentile. Uh, the, the idea of using profit, that was to eliminate the needs for the mass killings in the gulag system that had sprung up in the Soviet Union. You know, when Lenin tried to implement communism in the Soviet Union, it didn't go so well. It turned out that people weren't going to go out and work as hard for everybody else as they were willing to work for themselves and their own families. So what, what Lenin did was, was he created a gulag system and he said, well, the problem here is people are greedy. All we have to do is get rid of the greedy people, which we could do either by re-educating them or by killing them. And that became the gulag system. Him and Trotsky came up with that. So when the Nazis could be described as ethno-nationalist fascists, which of course would have been very right-wing in Germany at the time the Nazis came to power. That's all very, very true. It was extremely right-wing in Germany. Very, very much so. Even the concept that fascism had, that Giovanni Gentile had, about having a strong man leader. Well, in Germany, they had a concept called, uh, they called the people the Volk. But the Volk were not the people who lived in the nation of Germany. The Volk was a term that referred to the Germanic people. Again, ethnic, not geographic. And when they talked about a Fuhrer, and Hitler didn't come up with the name Fuhrer. That was a part of German culture that went back a very long way. It was a dream of, of a Fuhrer uniting the Germanic peoples under one umbrella, one country, one nation. And uh, the Fuhrer doesn't translate to leader, though usually if you look for a translation, that's what they give you, because one word to one word, you would probably pick the word leader. But it's actually more than that. A more accurate translation of Fuhrer would be the living embodiment of the Volk. So the name Fuhrer, or the, the term Fuhrer, refers to a strong man leader who, who, who believes himself to be the living embodiment of the Germanic people. That's what Hitler viewed himself as, and that's what many Nazis, you know, the Nazi people, they viewed Hitler as the living embodiment of the, of the German people. So... That was 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 Nazi, and, and which is not exactly the same as other forms of fascism, because uh, 
no, fascism was all over the world. You had Italy, you had Franco in Spain. People forget this, but Franco lived in, into the 1980s. So Spain was a fascist nation until Franco died, I think, in 1983. Argentina was fascist. Romania, fascist. Uh, Romania, when you think about uh, gypsies, people tend to think about Romania. That's not because the gypsies are only from Romania. It's because Romania was a fascist country that aligned itself with Germany and as such was never directly controlled by Germany. One of the groups that Hitler exterminated throughout Europe, at least the parts he controlled, were the gypsies. So it was actually more successful in killing off the gypsies than he was in killing off the Jews, which is which is why you don't hear more about the genocide against the gypsies. Uh, it was it was successful enough; there weren't enough left really to complain about it afterwards. So, but you know, not not taking anything away from the Holocaust, just saying there were other groups that Hitler targeted. He was a very very evil person, but uh, that the the the. Part of it that, that people, I think, are the most offended by, we should be offended by all fascism, let me, let me be very clear on that, but the racist part of it wasn't really, you know, nobody, Spain wasn't wasn't like that, it was, certainly was, Franco wasn't like that, so when you look at the racist aspect of it, that really was Nazism more so than fascism per se. And if you look at, uh, if you study the, the bromance between Mussolini and FDR before Hitler invaded Poland, you can see that fascism was solidly on the American left, so much so that FDR came out with what the National Recovery Act as a means to implement Mussolini's fascism in the United States. The National Recovery Act. Now, if we look at Elizabeth Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act, that's a retread of FDR's National Recovery Act. And FDR's National Recovery Act is a direct copy. He actually sent envoys during a as, as Mussolini started to, to make it look like Italy was coming out of the uh, Great Depression. And I'll get into why that wasn't necessarily the case a little bit later. But he sent envoys to try to see what Mussolini was doing to try to get Italy out of the Great Depression. And those envoys came back and gave him a list of things that he could do in America to implement the economy of Mussolini's Italy. And those ideas became the National Recovery Act. So the National Recovery Act was a copy of Mussolini's fascist Italy. Well, Elizabeth Warren has what she calls the Accountable Capitalism Act, and that's a retread of the National Recovery Act. So Elizabeth Warren wants to implement Mussolini's Italy. And that's, of course, the dictionary definition or the Giovanni Gentile's definition of fascism. So when you hear me say that Elizabeth Warren is a fascist, that's why I say that. I say Elizabeth Warren is a fascist because she wants to implement fascism. And I'm saying that as an economic term. I'm not saying that as, as an insult against Elizabeth Warren, though I hope she is deeply insulted by it because fascism, I think, is, is in my opinion, it's very, very evil. Uh, but yeah, she is a fascist. She is the, a textbook fascist. I would say Hillary Clinton was a textbook fascist. I would say Joe Biden, because he said that he supports the Accountable Capitalism Act, I would say Joe Biden is an actual fascist. So that's based on Mussolini's Italy. And as always, the American, the modern American left is not against evil things so much as words with evil connotations. So while practicing actual fascism, they label their opponents as fascists in spite of the absurdity of calling Hitler or Mussolini or Franco or any of the other fascist leaders libertarians. Hitler was not a libertarian. 
The idea that he believed in personal freedom is not just wrong, it's absurd. So the notion that there's some kind of connection between libertarianism or liberty and fascism is absolutely absurd. It could not be farther from the truth. Leftists also like to call their opponents racist, while teaching our children and college students to view the world through a lens of intersectionality that is a reflection of actual racism. So the left is perfectly happy with racism and fascism. They just don't like those words, which they like to misapply to everyone else while continuing to be the racists and the fascists. But luckily for the American people, of course, we seem to be waking up to that little gambit. We're poised to show an absolute red tsunami in the midterms and hopefully in the 2024 presidential elections. But now I've got bad news for you, which is that it may already be too late. The midterm elections are not anywhere near as important as we thought they were going to be because the opportunity to stop Joe Biden from implementing fascism in the United States may have already passed, or it's passing right now in front of our eyes. So whoever we vote for in the midterms, uh, it may be too late to prevent America from becoming a fascist state. And that gets back to that acronym E. S.G. Environmental Social Governance. The SEC has noted that a lot of companies claim to be following ESG and are encouraging ESG investors to invest in them based on their environmental social governance scores. But the SEC has noticed that a lot of these companies are only giving lip service to ESG without actually making the kinds of changes that are necessary to fit in with ESG as it is applied by the International Accounting Standards Board under the International Financial Reporting Standards. So guess what the SEC has proposed that it should do? The SEC on May 25th proposed that it should manage ESG governance in the United States. Now, who sets the ESG scores? Are those set by the European Union? No, this is an international financial planning reporting standard of the International Accounting Standards Board. This is actually controlled by the United Nations, except the United Nations does not create the ESG scoring system itself. The ESG scoring system is actually controlled by, well, the UN has, has nominal control of it. They can do whatever they want. But what they actually do is they listen to the World Economic Forum. So the way this works is the World Economic Forum finds what environmental social governance should look like. And then the International Accounting Standards Board, and now also the SEC, enforces it upon the world's corporations. So what did I just say? I just said that the SEC has signed on to a system of central planning, still with a profit incentive, but central planning that will be run by Carl Schwab's World Economic Forum that is endorsed by the United Nations and the European Union. It is a part of the International Financial Reporting Standards and the Environmental Social Governance is now a part of, or will soon be, it has been proposed by the SEC that they enforce those rules in the United States. 
Now, if somebody from the SEC is listening here, what they're going to respond with is, but it's only voluntary in the United States. Companies are not forced to follow ESG rules. Well, everything's always voluntary when the SEC first starts to enforce it. It stays voluntary until they change their minds. So how long will it be voluntary? My guess is probably about 10 minutes. We are witnessing the SEC taking the United States economy and centrally planning it based upon environmentalism and based on Charles Schwab's vision of what socialism should look like, whatever social means to Charles Schwab. And he's told us what it means. He had seven points. The primary one is that by the year 2030, you will own absolutely nothing and you'll be happy. You'll be happy owning absolutely nothing. So if you own a car, they're going to take that away from you. If you own a house, they're going to take that away from you. This will be a rent economy in which everything you have, you will pay what the government thinks you should pay every month for. Cars are going to be a subscription sort of thing where you won't have a car, but you'll pay every month a subscription service. And when you need a car, an electric car with, which is which will not have a driver, it's just you know computer controlled, will drive up to your home, a self-driving car, pick you up, take you where you need to go, drop you off, and then drive away for somebody else. This also helps to solve the charging problem of electric cars because these things, when they start running low on juice, will just pull off into a charging place and start charging. And uh, if you're driving a long distance, you know they'll pull in somewhere and you'll get out and that car will go to charge. And you'll get in a different car and that car will take you on the next leg of your, your journey. So that's the vision with cars. You won't own one. You won't own a house. You won't own clothing. You won't own anything. You will rather pay the government essentially rent, and then the government will provide those things for you. This is Carl Schwab's vision of the world economy. And this is what the United Nations is pushing for. And this is what the Joe Biden-led SEC is starting to implement now in the United States. So there you go. little history of what fascism is, who the fascists are, what they're doing, and where we are today. And that gets us to the halfway point of our show. So please stay healthy. I've got a great second half coming up. We start talking about what all of this means to you and me. But before we get to the second half, we're going to give our sponsors a little bit of time to talk about some products they have to help you stay healthy. I know Malcolm says... Get out and walk, see the sunshine, see the sky and the trees, say hello to all of your, your the people that are walking by and see who says hi to you. I actually prefer weight training myself, uh, and I also like to uh, I like to take walks. You know, I do do that, but I also use an echo bike, which is a very very vigorous form of a form of, of cardiovascular training. You do what works for you, but stay healthy. And let's give our sponsors a moment to tell us about some of the great products they have that can help us with that endeavor. Then we'll come back on the other side and we'll start talking about all of the impacts that these changes are going to have on you and me and why we should be concerned. The silent majority has spoken. We say, let the silent voices be heard. You can be the voice of change. 
contact our producer at liberty at americaoutloud.com. Liberty at americaoutloud.com. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. You are on Voice of a Nation. I am Wallace Garneau, and we are talking about ESGs. We're talking about the SEC and how it's now going to manage ESGs, or it's going to regulate, rather, companies that are dealing with ESGs. And I want to make a point there about the SEC specifically. I I touched on it in the first half of the show, and then I thought during the break, you know, I need to hit that harder, because uh, a lot of people are going to say, if only companies that are voluntarily working with ESGs are affected by this, how big of a deal is it? You know, if a company wants to do that and they open the door for the SEC to make sure that they're doing what they say they're doing well, is it that big of a deal? And the answer is yes, and for two reasons. The first reason is that we have organizations like 
Consumers Reports. Now, there are financial versions. And there is, I don't know specifically a financial version of Consumers Reports, but there are all kinds of financial magazines and news sources that rate investments. And uh, it's not hard to find ESG ratings for companies that are trying to be in that, in that group, that classification of companies. So finding ratings isn't hard. The other thing is, is that the SEC is not really a rating company. The SEC is an enforcement arm of the United States government. Its job is to enforce the law, not to rate companies in terms of how they're doing based upon some benchmark that they don't even legally have to do. So the fact that the SEC is doing this is very, very telling. The SEC is, is, they're eventually going to regulate all companies this way. But even the companies that they're regulating this way today, who are going to be, if this this rule is, is uh, this proposed rule takes effect, is that think about what it means to regulate a company's ESG ratings or to rate a company based upon how it's doing as an ESG company. That means you're running the company. That means that you are telling the company what it must do in terms of environmental controls. Uh, and not just the company, but in this case, the company, all of its suppliers, its entire supply chain, everybody. So, you know, you're, you're essentially regulating all of those companies, and that's going to cast a very wide net. Uh, then when you get into the social score, which uh, the rule doesn't say is going to be applied down the supply chain, but I don't know how you avoid sending it down the supply chain. You know, Apple, for example, using what is effectively slave labor in China. How's their social score going to be when they're utilizing essentially slave labor in China? Disney making a movie in the shadow of concentration camps in China. You know, the Mulan. How is that going to look in terms of the social part of their ESG score when they are all but condoning genocide? Which is crazy because, I mean, these, these are companies that are claiming to want to be socially responsible and then they're using slavery and uh, they're, they're witnessing genocide right next door and, and all of these terrible, terrible things. And in the meantime, companies that are being very helpful socially, such as ExxonMobil, that uh, during the pandemic, they lost in one quarter, they lost $20 billion dollars. Now, I know Joe Biden says they're making more money than God, but let's be honest here. You and I make more money than God because God doesn't make money. ExxonMobil this last year has lost somewhere between 15 and $18 billion. That's not making money at all. Now, the last quarter, they were very profitable. Price of oil high, obviously, as a company that extracts and refines oil, limited refining capacity, and, and we're limiting our ability to drill, which is causing not so much shortages, but certainly the price to go up. Oh, yeah, they're going to make money in that kind of an environment. And that's that's what happened. They made money. And and so the cost of oil and gasoline has gone up. But the cost of gasoline and oil going up would normally trigger a company to drill more. And it's not ExxonMobil that isn't willing to drill more. Joe Biden says they're not. But the truth is Joe Biden ran on a policy. He actually promised it ends now. When he was talking about drilling, it ends now. That was a promise, campaign promise. And he's been following through on that. He has promised that the that these companies, the, the natural gas companies and the oil companies, that they will be out of business soon. He hasn't said exactly how long they have, but he wants to shut them out of business. 
And, you know, it, it takes time for the, the point where you get a lease and you start looking to see if there's oil there. And you have to drill to see if there's oil there. You have to do some exploratory drilling. And then you find the oil. Now you have to build the infrastructure to get the oil out of the ground. You have to you have to have a mechanism, maybe building roads or a rail station or, or a t- whatever. It, you have to have a way to get that oil from the well to the market. So there's a large time lag between the time that you get an oil lease and the time that you're able to make money off of the oil, if there is any from that lease. And these companies want to do that. They want to drill for more oil so that they can bring the price of gasoline down, so that they can make the United States energy efficient. And they want to do it in environmentally friendly ways. Everybody talks about how companies don't want to do environmentally friendly things, but that's not true. Now, I've been a upper... An upper, not a C tier person, but I've been an upper executive in in corporations. I know how they operate. I know how they think. Most corporations are run by good people who want to do good things, but they can't always do good things. Now there are exceptions. I worked for a company that literally made uh, government grants spraying coal with essentially fire hoses. They'd get the coal wet. They would say they're washing the coal, and then they get about two million dollars a year in grants. Washing coal does nothing but make it wet. Spraying with a fire hose is not cleaning the coal, uh, but they were getting money for that. That eventually dried up, but the point is the government was was giving subsidies to companies and grants to companies to do things that were not helpful, and, and you know, some companies take advantage of that, and, and that company was. I'm not going to name the company, but, but it's, it was out there. So these things happen, but generally speaking, when companies are doing stupid things like spraying coal with fire hoses... It's because the government is encouraging them to do stupid things like spray coal with fire hoses and not because somebody sat back and said, you know what, let's just rip people off. Now, I'm not going to say no company has ever sat back and said, you know what, let's rip people off. Of course companies have done that. You know, snake oil salesman, that goes all the way back to almost the founding of our country. It's That kind of thing has happened for all of human history. But as a general rule, if you buy snake oil from somebody and it doesn't help you, you're not apt to buy it again. Consumers learn. Can somebody get ripped off? Yes. Can somebody make money doing crooked things in the short term? Yes. In the medium and long term, it gets hard. In the medium and long term, once you destroy your reputation, it's hard to get it back. You know, I look at Dell. There was a time when people were like, dude, you're getting a Dell. And it was that was a good thing. It was it was considered almost there were good computers. It was almost prestigious. You know, you're getting a Dell. Lucky you. And then Michael Dell sold the company, and it went public, and it started buying other companies like Compact. Actually, it was, it was Hewlett Packard that bought Compact, but it was, but the, the Dell started to go downhill. They, they had this great, great, rate reputation, and they said, you know, we could just coast on our reputation for a while, continue to make money, cut costs, cut uh, our quality, do all these things that'll make our computers not as good, but they're still going to sell well because we've got this great reputation. Well, over time, the reputation became tarnished, and pretty soon, instead of, dude, you got a Dell, it was, dude, you got a Dell? And, you know, nobody wanted them anymore because they did not have the reputation of being a good company. Luckily for the company, Michael Dell's name was still on it, and he took it kind of personally, eventually got the company back, and uh, running it privately again, he has brought the quality of Dell back up where it needs to be. So, I no longer have a bad taste in my mouth to Dell computers, but they did go through a period where Michael Dell was not running it, where it was very, very problematic. So, you know, 
companies try to do good things, make quality products for their consumers, get oil so that we can drive our cars and things like that. Uh, ESG's against that. And I mean, seriously, what are we going to replace oil and natural gas with? Wind and solar? That's a joke. I had to, did an article just recently, I think I brought up on the air a couple of times too, about how consumption and production has to always be exactly the same. And if you can't vary production with demand, you have to throttle consumption by keeping it below demand by enough that any variability in production that you can't control isn't going to blow your grid. If production ever spikes above demand, if you can't utilize all of the electricity you're producing, you don't blow a circuit in somebody's house. You blow up the entire electric grid, and that could take months to get back online. So imagine the winter without heat. You know that That's the kind of thing that we're facing if we... If we, if we go down the road of, of getting rid of oil and natural gas, as the President of the United States has promised. That means rolling blackouts and brownouts forever. And as we rely more and more on energy outputs that are energy sources, we can't control the production level because of the variance. As we rely more and more on that, the level of rolling brownouts and blackouts is just going to continue to grow. In parts of the country, California, you've been experiencing that for some time now, Michigan, we're told, is going to experience it this year. Hasn't happened yet. It is in the heat of the day right now as, I, as, as, I, as I'm doing this. It's like 95 degrees outside, which is it's usually not 95 degrees in Michigan. And uh, we get days like that every year, but I mean, that would be one of our hotter days. I still have electricity, so everybody's running their air conditioning and, and everything still, you know, still have electricity. So I have not been hit by a rolling brownout or a rolling blackout yet, but that's what's happening and is forcing millions of Americans to go without power on a regular basis, potentially all Americans to go without power on a regular basis, uh, perhaps causing a catastrophic event at a bad time and, and, and seeing millions of Americans die, as, as could have happened in Texas a, a couple of years ago when, when they had the energy problem there. Is that socially responsible? Now, what is socially responsible? Who decides what is socially responsible? You know, it gets back onto like that Phil Donahue show. He had Milton Friedman, and he asked Milton Friedman, is, do you really think greed is such a great thing to run the country on? And Milton Friedman said, well, what is greed? Who's greedy? You know, it's, it's, nobody's greedy. It's always the other guy. Just ask someone. And, and the audience laughed, and Milton Friedman had this great way of, of, of you could take a hostile crowd, and you could just disarm them through humor, and, and through his, his, he was a very witty guy. So... No, it was hard not to like Milton Friedman, even if you disagreed with him. If you if you ever had the opportunity to hear him, if you haven't heard him speak, he's all over YouTube. You should you should listen to it. Uh, but anyway, that's that's you know, Milton Friedman. And the point there is that what is socially responsible? What does that even mean? Who gets to decide what is socially responsible? Everybody is socially responsible if you ask them. It's always the other guy who is not. It's always the other guy who is greedy. It's always the other guy who wants to do the wrong things. Well, being socially responsible in this case means being woke. They're telling us what socially responsible is. Socially responsible is telling a five-year-old boy that if he wants to be a girl, you'll take him out and have his penis cut off. That if, he want, that if, if a girl wants to take puberty blockers, you'll give her puberty blockers. She may never be able to have a child. Same thing... With, with the using for chemical castration uh, with, 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 rape, with rapists and pedophiles, who people volunteer to, be, to, to have that to reduce their sentence, that's what they use the puberty blocker on boys. They use actual chemicals that are, they use the same chemicals that are, that are used for chemical castration. So 
the idea this is purely reversible, we're just going to put puberty on pause, we're, we're destroying children. And, you know, my attitude is, if you're an adult, you can do whatever you want. This is a free country. If you want to live as, the, uh, as, as a different gender, it's a free country. More power to you. I just want people to be happy. But doing that to a five-year-old child or a 10-year-old child? At what point is somebody old enough to be able to make those decisions? You know, we're saying you can't have a gun until you're 21. Well, I'm not saying that, but there are people that are saying that we should make it so you can't have a gun until you're 21. So you're not responsible enough to have a gun, but you're responsible enough to decide to have your penis cut off. Seriously. I, I just, I don't get that. Now, if a parent is, is, is so sure that their child should do that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess... To me, it should be up to a parent. A child should not be able to to get gender-altering surgery or, or treatments without their parents' consent, certainly. And yet, parents are being told they have to do that. and It's crazy. And Disney, you know, defending the right of teachers to sexualize kindergartners. Is that socially responsible? Now, if you get to decide what is socially responsible, then you can force companies to do those kinds of things. You can say, you know what? We're going to make it so that you have to do that because we're regulating you. And if you don't champion the right of teachers to sexualize kindergartners and to have and to encourage five-year-olds to get their to get their genitalia mutilated. We're going to call you out of compliance and we're going to start fining you billions of dollars and all the things that the SEC could do to companies that are out of compliance. That's what we're heading toward. And as we talked about in the first half of the show, the definition for a country, or an economy rather, that is centrally planned, controlled by the government, but still held in nominally in private hands, where you still have a profit incentive, that is, but the government has as much control over the companies as it wants, that is the textbook definition of fascism. That is exactly the system of economy that Giovanni Gentile wrote about when he created what he called fascism. I know people today like to use different definitions for the word fascism, but that's because they want to be fascists and they don't want to get called out for it. So I'm very careful. When somebody starts talking about too much government control over the economy, control over specific businesses, such as what this does, uh, the Accountable Capitalism Act that, that Elizabeth Warren wants, that's fascism. That's straight-up fascism, straight out of Mussolini's Italy, straight out of FDR's National Recovery Act, which was a copy of Mussolini's Italy. That's straight-up fascism. So this whole ESG thing, ESG is fascism, straight-up. Uh, the environmental side, you could say, well, we're just protecting the environment. We can get into a debate about whether or not climate change is, is real. Uh, my attitude there is, of course, climate change is real. The climate has been changing since the creation of the Earth. It's always going to be changing. Uh, in terms of global warming or man's impact on the climate, certainly man can have an impact on the climate. Certainly man has had an impact on the climate. Uh, CO2, does that cause temperatures to rise? I think when you look at the data, uh, when you look at all the different models out there, the models that have proven to be the most accurate historically, and they've been modeling this going back to uh, the early 1990s at least, when you look at the ones that the models were predictive, uh, that the, the, the actual temperature records followed, well, they're the models that predict the least amount of warming. They're not the ones that are saying that Florida is going to be underwater. They're the ones that are saying 
we've got plenty of time to worry about this. We don't have to make any radical changes today. We don't have to stop using natural gas to power our houses, for example. And we need to just chill out and be economically smart while being environmentally conscious. We have to, to, at some point I do think we may have to really look at reducing our level of greenhouse gas emissions, but you know, we could do that hundreds of years from now and still be perfectly fine. The amount of warming that we're talking about happening is, is, is it's not, it's, it's no, nothing catastrophic. The models that are actually predictive are not predicting anything catastrophic. They're not predicting anything that anyone should be overly alarmed about. We just need to be aware that the, as, as technologies emerge that could allow us to have cheap and reliable energy, hopefully at a lower cost, uh, but that can do so without changing the chemical composition of the atmosphere, yeah, we need to, to start looking at moving to those. But we need to move to those as those technologies become available. And uh, wind and solar, isn't it? Wind and solar, isn't it? But is, is, is forcing companies to utilize wind and solar to, to radically reduce their carbon footprint, thus making their products more expensive to consumers uh, and, and all these other problems that are being caused by it. By, you know, is, is that socially responsible? And, of course, those who are in favor of all of this crap are going to say, yeah, that's socially responsible. That's exactly what we need to do. So you know, what is socially responsible? My definition of a socially responsible company is a company that is ethically doing everything that it can to maximize long-term sustainable profit for its shareholders. And I say that that is my definition of socially responsible. A lot of people just say, well, that's greed. No, it's not. When you think about what a company has to do to make long-term profit, it has to be socially responsible because it has to do things that people are, for the long period of time, for the long haul, willing to pay for. It has to make high-quality products that are in demand. It has to have you know products and services that people want. If people aren't willing to buy your goods and services, to me, that means that you're not making anything people want and you're not being socially responsible. So making movies in, in which uh, in, in, for children that are, are, are forwarding an ideology and that are not entertaining, you know, Buzz Lightyear getting crushed at the box office, that's not socially responsible. What's socially responsible is Top Gun Maverick. That was socially responsible because people like it. People are willing to spend their money on it. So, you know... The whole concept that somebody has the right to tell you what is socially responsible and to tell companies how to operate based upon what they consider socially responsible, that's political activism in the economy of the first order. That is everything our country was founded not to do. Uh, that is what our founders were trying to protect us from. Now, it used to be that in order to open a company, you literally had to get a charter from the king. It used to be the largest corporation on earth, the very largest corporation on earth, was, on earth was the East Indy Trading Company, which was owned by the Crown. The Crown made billions off the East Indies Trading Company because it was the only company that was allowed to ship products to and from England. It was, it was uh, or at least for the British Crown. And so huge, largest corporation on earth, fully owned by the king. You know, that's not socially responsible, but that's the kind of direction these people want to move us back to. And to use rules that are set by the World Economic Forum, holy smokes. Now we're talking about underlying, not, that's not even the United Nations. 
that's just some crackpot that, that believes that nobody should own anything. It, he actually said that by 2030, you'll own absolutely nothing and you'll like it. So we're going to let this guy determine what is socially responsible. What's socially responsible is Carl Schwab shutting the hell up. That's what's socially responsible. So, no, we, we're not going to let Carl Schwab do that. But if, if we follow these rules, you know, all of a sudden now we're looking at an economy run by, if not the World Economic Forum, which is who's effectively going to be doing it, it's still run by the United Nations. So now what? We're going to have a one-world government that determines every economic question, that runs every business on the entire planet as, as, as deeply as they want to, that grades how well you're doing, not in making money, but in doing other things that have nothing to do with your, with your interests. That's socially responsible? No, that's fascist. That's absolutely fascist. And if they start taking the profit away, which they can do by saying you're making too much money, if, if they start making these companies not make money, if they, at what point do you say that it's not even really owned by the people who are the nominal paper owners? Now, if you don't control something, how much ownership do you really have over it? Well, Giovanni Gentile would say none, but he'd say you don't shouldn't have ownership over it. It should be owned by the government. We're just letting you make a profit. So you'll manage it effectively. You'll be you'll be efficient. We're just letting you pay your employees instead of giving them food and blankets and whatever instead of taking care of their basic needs. We're just allowing you to pay them so that they can continue to take care of their basic needs because we know that the alternative is building a gulag system, and when people don't meet their quotas, you kill them. So Giovanni Gentile would say that profit is a necessary evil that aligns people and businesses with the needs of the government. And what the government needs to do is it needs to determine what will be profitable, and it needs to determine how companies will be run and what they will do for the betterment of society. The problem is that the government can't tell us what the betterment of society is. Every government that has ever tried to do that, that's how the pyramids got, got created. The pyramids were built because Pharaoh, yes, I know Pharaoh made that because he wanted to be buried in it, but the, the point is that, that was what the Pharaoh was trying to do was to demonstrate his own greatness and thus the greatness of Egypt by building a huge monument to himself and directing the, the entire workforce of, of much of Egypt to that endeavor. Millions of people being forced to build these pyramids. And the basic purpose of that is that you can point to it and say, of course we're a great society. Look what we built. Maybe you don't have a great life. Maybe we don't have enough food for you to eat. Maybe we don't have enough water. Maybe you have substandard housing. Maybe maybe your, your, the toilet doesn't work. Maybe we have all these problems in our society. But look what we built. We have to be a great nation because we built that monument. We built that temple. We built that pyramid. We built that cultural center. The, the Russians, the Soviets would build these cultural centers in every capital of every country that they, uh, that they ran. Poland had one. If you've ever been to Warsaw, it's, it's a huge monstrosity. It's too bad that it would be so expensive to tear down. I would love to see it torn down. But that's what you do, is you build these monstrosities that you can point at and say, of course we're a great nation. Who else could build that? You can't build that by yourself. No private company can build that. You can't get to the moon. This is These are doing things just so you can point to it and say we're great. Well, to me, what makes a country great is how well it takes care of its people. And by how well it takes care of its people, I don't mean the government taking care of its people. I mean, how well enabled are the people to take care of themselves and each other? I'm a big believer that if you leave people free, 
they will find the best ways to help one another. And the reason is, even if they're greedy, at the end of the day, the only way to make long-term sustainable profit is to help others. If you're not helping others, they're not buying your goods and services. If you're not making a better mousetrap, they're not buying your mousetrap. What I'm sick and tired of are things like airbag requirements. And I don't want to pick on airbag requirements specifically because airbags, I think, if, if I had the option of buying a car with or without airbags, I would pay more for them. But I shouldn't be forced to buy airbags just because some company wants to make more money and would like to have airbags by law in every car. That's not how it's supposed to work. Airbags should be the norm because everybody wants them. There's no law that you have to have air conditioning in a car. There's no law saying you have to have FM radio in a car. Try buying a car without air conditioning or without an FM radio. It might as well be law because nobody makes it. It's not an option that's available. Getting a stick shift is getting harder and harder and harder. You, they don't make a lot of stick shifts anymore. A lot of companies, a lot of cars, they don't make a stick shift at all. Why? Because there's no demand for that. There's no demand for that. Nobody wants to buy it, and then they, they get rid of it on their own. So you don't need the government to tell you you have to have airbags in cars. You need consumers that don't buy cars that don't have airbags. The things we want, we're going to get. The socially responsible companies are the companies that give us the things we want. And I can tell how socially responsible a country is by how rich the people in that country are. And I don't mean the, the how rich the people who are dependent on government are. I mean how easy it is to get an education, to get a job that pays well, to raise a family, to, to buy a house, or to live your life however you want. If you are enabled to make the most of your life with minimal or ideally no government intrusion in your ability to do that, that to me is socially responsible. And everything about this ESG, everything the SEC is trying to do, everything the Biden administration is trying to do, everything that Elizabeth Warren is trying to do, everything they're forcing down our throats goes against that. So if we want social responsibility, we need to vote these people out. We need to demand a return to free markets. We need to drill for oil so we can afford to drive our cars. We need to end this climate tyranny, and we need to do it now. And ladies and gentlemen, that's our show. Uh, I hope I fired you up a little bit because it is time to do it is time. We need to start doing things, not just talking about doing things. So that's our show. And now people, please get loud and get involved. Thank you.